Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Good. Luke 19, if you have a Bible, we're gonna, I'm going to read God's word to us today, beginning in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? Why are you stealing my donkey? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in, the highest, uh, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple, uh, the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is God's word. Today is Palm Sunday, and what we are celebrating on Palm Sunday is the story that we just read, what's commonly called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But when you read this story with modern eyes, like, it's okay to say it's kind of strange, right? It doesn't really make all that much sense. Out of context, it's Bizarre, this first century rabbi riding into Jerusalem, intentionally finding like uh, a little donkey that has never been ridden before, uh, like going out of his way to pick out a little donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Um, as people put coats on the ground and they wave palm branches for some reason, singing songs to him. That's a strange story. But behind this story is a lot of imagery that is meant to point us back to the story of God's people, the history of Israel. And it, it, the story reveals that Jesus is the long-awaited king that everybody had been looking for, but that he's a different kind of king than you'd think. That's the big idea for this morning's message. And I think that sometimes in church world, we can look at Israel's story and kind of oversimplify it as God's failed attempt to sort out the mess of human sin that was made in Genesis chapter 3. Like, God sees that humans mess up, 
And then he starts to look around and he finds a guy named Abraham and tells him that through this guy and his family, God's going to save all people. And then this family screws up over and over and over again until God finally gets tired of it. He rolls up his sleeves. He comes and gets to work himself through his son, Jesus, who goes to the the cross and fixes everything. And now we don't have to worry about those silly laws of Israel. They failed. We've got Jesus. It's all good. It's a little oversimplified, right? But Jesus didn't come to redeem the world in a vacuum. And Jesus didn't come to sort of replace what was all of Israel's failure. He actually came as the culmination of the story of God's redemptive work through his people, Israel. Jesus didn't just come to live a sinless life, die on the cross, and cleanse us of our sins. He actually came to inaugurate a kingdom that God's people had been longing for and looking for for hundreds and thousands of years. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to do a crash course through two-thirds of the Bible in about eight minutes. So turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Genesis chapter 12. What we read, and last week we did sort of a really big picture meta-narrative on how God answers some of our biggest questions uh, through the gospel. And uh, today we're just going to go through Israel and we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. After the fall in Genesis 3, when, sin, when human sin enters the world and breaks everything, there are eight chapters filled with humans essentially descending deeper and deeper into their fallenness and God dealing with them time after time, trying to draw them back to their created purpose, what he designed them for in Genesis chapter 1. We read that there was a flood And then there was a scattering of peoples to form various nations. And finally, God shows up in Genesis 12 to a guy named Abram in what we now call Iraq. And this is what we read in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God chooses this man, Abram, to become a great nation, what, would, what was designed to become a kingdom, and that through this kingdom, all of the peoples, all of the nations, all of the other kingdoms of the world would be blessed. God is now, through Abram, going to get to work undoing the mess that the human race made in their sin and enable humans to pick up the pieces of their original design purpose in Genesis 1, to look after God's world, to make it fruitful, and to spread his goodness, his beauty, his love, what he calls his shalom. And thus begins the story of the Abrahamic people. God changes Abram's name to Abraham, and then he gave him a son named Isaac, who then had a son named Jacob, who then had 12 sons, who become the 12 patriarchs of Israel. We're moving kind of fast. You guys still with me? All right. And so one of those 12 sons, a guy named Joseph, became one of the first fulfillments of God's promise to Israel, or to Abram, uh, that through Through great difficulty and lots of trials, Joseph finds himself wrongfully imprisoned alone in Egypt. But because of his faithfulness to God, because of his commitment to the way of Yahweh, um, he, he was used to become a blessing to all of the surrounding nations during a time of great famine. All of the surrounding nations were blessed 
because of Joseph's faithfulness to God. But sadly, after that, the people of Israel soon found themselves enslaved in Egypt. And for 400 years, they cried out to God to be delivered from the yoke of slavery that they were experiencing in the kingdom of Egypt. They longed for God to fulfill his promise. How can we be the great nation through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed if we find ourselves enslaved in Egypt? This doesn't make any sense. So God raises up uh, this guy, Moses who delivered God's people from their oppression in Egypt by the power of God. It's the famous 10 plagues. And God himself leads the people out into the wilderness, and he gave them a law to establish them as, quote, a people for his own possession. God was forming them into a nation. He was forming them into a kingdom, and that he himself was going to be their ruler, their king. And if they would remain faithful to him, and if they would trust him, and if they would obey him, he would make them into a kingdom of blessing for all peoples. But did Israel remain faithful to God? I mean, sometimes, right? Here and there. And as they spread out into the land that they were promised, they again and again would revert to doing so in their own strength and for their own benefit. And in doing this, they ended up conquering and ruling in the same manner as the oppressors that they had just been delivered from. They look just like the other nations. Rather than being a blessing, they are a yoke and an oppressor to other people. And then Israel demanded that God would give them a king just like the other nations. They look around and they see all of the other nations around them have like these strong figureheads, these mighty rulers who would exercise authority with an iron fist. And Israel looked around and said, we need one of those. And God says, you do not want to do this. You just need to remain faithful God will be your king, and blessing will flow to you and through you to all of the other nations. But they demanded their own way. And so God gave them a king, the very thing that they were looking for, a guy named Saul. And Israel's first king, we read, he was tall, and he was handsome, and he seemed strong, and he was the kind of leader that you would want. But over time, this ruler, this leader, he became corrupted by the authority and the power of his position. He stopped listening to God and started trusting in himself, which inevitably leads to insecurity and fear and ruthlessness, and eventually the kingdom is stripped from Saul. And God raises up another king, somebody who is uniquely qualified, a man, a young man named David, and his qualification was that he was a man after God's own heart. If God wasn't going to be the king, he was going to raise up somebody who reflected the heart of God to the people. And David became a foreshadowing of another king, the Messiah, who would one day rule Israel with justice and righteousness. And through the reign of this messianic king, Israel would again lead the nations into the blessing of God. And this is what we read from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, a verse that we often read at Christmas time, but we'll read it at Easter instead this year. We read this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The promise to Isaiah, who was living at a time where king, the kings of Israel were corrupt and a mess, that there would be a king who would rule on David's throne and that he would uphold it with justice and with righteousness forever. Doesn't that sound awesome? Doesn't that sound like something we want? Following David, then came a series of kings who mostly did the very opposite of that. There would be the occasional king who would follow the way of God here and there, but mostly they ruled just like all the other nations, building their empire on the backs of slaves and oppressing peoples from other nations. And eventually God judged Israel by sending them away out into exile in a nation called Babylon. And so they were this powerful nation ruled by a king with a temple where sacrifices were happening daily, and all of a sudden, everything is destroyed. They no longer have any kind of king. They're kicked out of the land that they were promised, and they're under the yoke of somebody else. How in the world are they going to be what God called them to be in that situation? We thought we were supposed to be the head and not the tail. We thought we were supposed to be the nation that leads all of the other nations. What about your promises, God? And the prophets continue to point forward to an eventual future fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, calling them to not give up hope, but to, but to hold fast and remain faithful to God even in the midst of exile. And they spoke, again, of a coming king who would rule with righteousness and justice, who would bless all of the nations of the earth. But we start to learn that paradoxically, this king, who's, uh, this, this king would have power that actually came in the form of weakness. That he would rule, but he would lay down his life. He would be a suffering servant. And if that's confusing to us, imagine how confusing this would be to the people of Israel. And so while in exile, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, saying this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king, he comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule or his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And for 500 years, Israel struggled under the yoke of oppressive rulers, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. And as the birth of Jesus was drawing near, Israel was on the lookout for some kind of hoped-for messianic king. And then the Gospel of Mark opens with this announcement. It says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news or the gospel. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. 
What was the gospel that Jesus came proclaiming? The time has come. The kingdom is at hand. Adjust your life to God's kingdom that is arriving and is standing before you. And then a summary statement of how Jesus lived that out or his ministry is found in Matthew chapter 4. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. We see that Jesus' entire ministry was centered on this idea. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God, what Dallas Willard calls the range of God's effective will, where what God wants done is done. And we see in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he says, pray like this. Pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done right here on earth, just like it is in heaven. And what is this kingdom like? Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. He says it's a kingdom that's ruled by God. It's an upside-down kingdom where the way of power is subverted by sacrificial love. It's one where authority comes through humility and servanthood. It's one of nonviolence and love for your enemy rather than conquering your enemy. John Wimber, one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, described Jesus' life and ministry like this. He says, Jesus was full of the spirit without measure and empowered for a purpose to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. And so Jesus would go throughout the region proclaiming the kingdom of God, correcting wrong theology and the messed up eschatological vision of the Pharisees. He taught us that the way of God's kingdom is not one of, you know, really tight, strict obedience to rules from the law, but rather comes from the transformation of the heart. And then Jesus demonstrated the kingdom. He healed the sick. He set free those who were under the influence of demonic forces. He fed the hungry. He clothed the poor. He restored sight to those who were blind. And he welcomed those who were far from God, those who were way off at a distance, foreigners and outcasts, and he welcomed them as into the family. Jesus confronted the rich and the powerful and those who oppressed the poor. He cleansed the temple in righteous anger. He broke social and political mores by eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. He sat at a well with a Samaritan woman, the ethnic other and the outsider, to extend welcome into God's family. Jesus went around preaching about the kingdom through parables and clarifying misunderstandings about what God was up to in the world. He revealed to us that God is a father, pointing us uh, to a new paradigm for how we can relate to God. He taught about the, uh, the father's love and his forgiveness, his tenderness, not just for the insiders, the people of Israel, but to all people. He revealed God's compassion for those who are suffering and on the margins, not not casting them with judgment as deserving of whatever they have, but that God's heart breaks for their situation. And this was all extravagant news. And so then, after three years of ministry, mostly up in the north in a place called Galilee, wandering through all of these villages, healing sick people, proclaiming the gospel, setting free the captives, Jesus and his followers then begin a journey to Jerusalem. 
And along the way, over and over again, he could not be more clear. We are going to Jerusalem and I am going to die, is what he was teaching his disciples. And his disciples, they know that Jesus is the Messiah. And they have specific expectations about what this Messiah was supposed to be like. Finally, Israel's king was coming and everything was about to change. All of their lives, they would have prayed for and longed for and hoped for this Messiah, who, yes, would be lowly and humble. He would be a suffering servant, but he would also free them from the yoke of the oppressor and that he would lead Israel to lead the rest of the nations to follow, to follow the ways of Yahweh and be faithful to God. And so as they, they drew near to the city, we have to remember that it was just a few days before the, the, the Passover, the feast where God's people remembered the way that God had delivered them out from under the oppressive rule of the Egyptians, out from their slavery. And each year as they celebrated this feast, there was a, a deep longing and hope that God would deliver them from their Roman oppressors and restore the kingdom to Israel. You see, Rome was cruel and evil, and the city was constantly tense with the collision of the Roman Empire and the faithfulness to God. Riots were common in Jerusalem. Rome exploited the poor and ruled with brutality. They ruled with strength. They crushed the weak. They led with fear. They were the ones that designed the cross, crucifixion, not as an efficient way of execution, but as a way of terrorizing people into submitting to their authority. And as they approached the city, Jesus sends a couple of his disciples out ahead to a village where they would find a small donkey. And see here, Jesus wasn't looking for a ride for the last, uh, for the last mile or so of his journey because, you know, he just wanted to rest his legs before a week of ministry. No, this was very intentionally pointing us back to the promise from Zechariah 9. And in Zechariah 9, Jesus, as he's pointing us back, he's saying that, he's saying that hey, look, I am the Messiah. I'm coming to you lowly and riding on a donkey. And the rest of the disciples, upon seeing this, must be thinking, if he's coming on a donkey, if he's fulfilling this promise and this prophecy, then certainly he is about to take away the chariots from our rulers. Certainly he is going to steal away the war horses. Certainly he is about to break the war bow. Certainly he is about to bring peace that we have all been longing for. The Messiah was arriving and as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the people, they begin to lay their coats down on the ground, on the road before him, and they cut palm branches, and they, they dance, and they sing, and they run, and they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it seems to us like the people who couldn't understand who Jesus was for all of the gospels are, st are finally starting to get it. They're starting to understand who Jesus is. But if we read just a little bit further, we realize that they still don't get what is about to happen. We, we know that it, at this time, the city was packed with faithful Jews from all over the region. The city that normally held about 30,000 people was overflowing with close to 180,000 faithful people. The world was here. The Passover feast had come. This was going to be the moment. 
And so they lay down their cloaks, but it wasn't just a sign of reverence, but also of loyalty and fealty and commitment. In laying down their coats, what they were saying was, we are loyal and we will follow you, Jesus, right into battle. And then they cut the palm branches, but these weren't just peaceful symbols of kind of worship that we don't, that we don't understand. It was actually a symbol of rebellion, pointing us back to the Maccabean revolt that had happened in the not-so-distant not past, a violent resistance movement. The palm branches were a revolutionary symbol of resistance against the Romans and would actually have been a risky, uh, a risky symbol to boldly wave in that political climate. And as they shouted Hosanna, they weren't just singing this catchy worship song, it's a word that means save Lord, save us now. That this was a declarative battle cry that finally God's salvation had come and he was about to defeat their enemies and establish them again in their rightful place in God's kingdom. And at the same time that all of this was happening, on the east entrance to Jerusalem, there was another procession that was happening on the west side of the city. Another ruler was arriving at the same time, not on a donkey, but on a white horse with all of the symbols of Rome's authority surrounding him. That Pontius Pilate had come from his, his uh, house by the sea and soldiers were dispatched to Jerusalem to keep the peace during the Passover festival. That two kingdoms were about to collide and everyone held their breath to see what would happen next. And that what would take place over the next week was a collision of the kingdom of God with the systems of the world and with the assumptions of the people. That what was about to happen was a time of incredible disorientation. The Messiah had come, but the people were not ready. And as Jesus enters the city, he begins to weep over it. The people were blind to who Jesus really was. In fact, the leaders of the synagogue, upon seeing the exuberance of the peoples, called out to Jesus to quiet his disciples down. Hey, can't you see that they're making a ruckus? Can't you see that they're disturbing the peace? And can't you see that they are, like, misplacing their worship on you? He wept because the hopes and the wrong assumptions of the people were about to be dashed and that they would come to a breaking point. And it was their broken hopes and their wrong assumptions that would ultimately lead them to cry out for his execution. And as his first act upon entering the city, he goes into the temple. He doesn't go to the Roman seat of power to overthrow the oppressor or to confront Pontius Pilate. He instead goes to the house of God and in anger, he drives out the money changers and the merchants. He sees the exploitation of the poor and the exclusion of the foreigner, and he turns over the tables in righteous anger because the Jesus revolution was beginning in the house of God. And for the next week, this revolution rose up against the corruption within God's people, not the corruption over God's people. Jesus shows that his kingdom is not one of power and strength, but is actually an upside-down kingdom. And the ultimate expre expression of this upside-down kingdom is at the cross. How does Jesus exercise his authority and his power as the long-awaited king? By giving up his power on the cross. 
Jesus in this week, he allows all of the other powers, the powers of this world, the powers of Satan, of sin, of death, and of hell to crush his mortal body and with it the hope of the kingdom. And that's why Holy Saturday is the darkest day in human history. All of the evil exhausts its power on him. And it's in his laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin that he paradoxically overcomes all of the evil that sought to destroy him and seeks to destroy us. We see that the, the, the expression of the upside-down kingdom, that ultimate victory comes in the form of surrender, not in fighting and resistance. The darkness that tried to extinguish the light is itself extinguished by Christ's sacrificial love. And it's at the cross that this upside-down kingdom of God is inaugurated. And at the cross, a whole new phase of human history has begun, but it has not yet been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now. It's here. The cross brought the kingdom. And it's also not yet. And in theology terms, we call this enacted, inaugurated eschatology. I know that you all came to church today wanting to learn some fancy theology words. Enacted. It was demonstrated by Jesus, and it continues in the works of his followers. Inaugurated, meaning it has officially begun in the person of Jesus and was confirmed in his death and resurrection. Eschatology meaning that the promise of the age to come is now overlapping uh, in the age that we live in now. And so as, although the kingdom of God is now at hand, we are still waiting for its fulfillment. It is now and it is not yet. It was initiated, but it is not yet realized. And we exist in that middle space. One of the best uh, pictures of kind of what we mean by this kingdom being here now, but not yet, uh, is, is seen in what is our newest federal holiday, uh, Juneteenth. On January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation after years of a horrific civil war. This proclamation declared that all persons held as slaves across the United States are now fully and officially free. And this, this proclamation, it changed the tide of the war. After the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, every advance of Union soldiers um, brought the authority of the proclamation and set people free from their slavery. So the proclamation also announced that all freed African-American slaves were now allowed to join the ranks of the Union Army which enabled the liberated to become liberators themselves. And we, read, we, we know that by the end of the Civil War, almost 200,000 African Americans had fought for the Union. And so although the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in January of 1863, there was a lag of two years before it was finally fully enforced across the United States. News traveled only as quickly as the Union forces could advance, and they would liberate people as they went. And finally, Texas, of course, Texas. 
was the farthest state from the announcement, and the reality of the proclamation was delayed in Texas until when on June 19, 1865, two and a half years later, in Galveston, Texas, the last enslaved African American was finally freed. For two years, the abolition of slavery was America's law, but it had not yet been realized or enforced in all of the states. There were people who had the possibility of freedom, but had yet to receive what was promised. They were living in the already and the not yet. They lived in the tension. And it was those who were formerly slaves who were bringing the liberty that they had received to others. What a picture of what the church is meant to be today. That we are the liberated, made liberators we are those who have tasted of the age to come and are sent to carry the good news to the rest of the world. Jesus, the long-awaited king, has decreed victory on the cross. He has announced that it is finished, but he has chosen to rely on his people to bring that message to those who are in darkness and without hope. In this contested space, the already and the not yet, we are living the future and bringing everyone with us. We are dragging the reality of the age to come into our present circumstances, and we are inviting people to taste of what God has promised all the way back when he met with Abram. So what is the gospel? It is the good news that the kingdom of God is here and is coming. It is the promise that the world, broken by human sin and the consequences of death and hell, have been overcome by Jesus, and that all who come to him can experience freedom and victory over their sin. That is the gospel that we have believed and that we are being sent to proclaim to everyone. Why is this good news for us today? It's good news that the power of our sin has been broken and that we can, be made, we can be forgiven and we can be made new creations in Christ. Without the forgiveness of sins, nothing else matters. What good would societal transformation or the alleviation of human suffering be if we were all still dead in our sins? But the gospel is more than just the forgiveness of sins. It is the promise that all things are being made new in Christ's resurrection power. It commissions us as a new humanity to bring this hope everywhere that we go, to live as kingdom people in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, in our, in, in our schools. And it propels us as the new humanity to step into every sphere of human culture and to step into every space of human suffering and to make it right and new. In the words of the prophet Micah, we are to act justly, we are to love mercy, and we are to walk humbly in relationship with God. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is still making things right. He is still healing bodies today. He is healing those who are sick and in pain. He is restoring broken marriages and disrupted families. He is setting free those who are captive to sin, to the demonic, and to addiction. He is drawing those who are lonely into his family, the church, he is breaking off shame and condemnation and washing us clean. We are made new creations in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit and experiencing eternal life beginning today. 
Because of Jesus' death on the cross, sin and death have no claim on us. We are his forever, and this is good news. Amen? Within the gospel, there is, yes, more than the forgiveness of sins, but it is not less. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is advancing, and he is beginning to do that work right here in the hearts of people. Amen? Amen. We're about to take communion. Before we take communion, which is uh, a meal where we celebrate as God's people this gospel, I just want to pause for a moment, and I want to make this appeal that God's kingdom has come. Things are being made new. Captives are being set free. And that some people here this morning may not have ever responded to this message. And the Bible says that without Christ, we are enslaved, we are in darkness, we are in bondage, and that he has come to set us free. And if you have never taken a step towards Jesus, I want to encourage you, he is offering and extending you freedom, and he is extending to you new life with him. And all you have to do is say yes. Yes to King Jesus. All you have to do is lay your cloak on the road, on the, lay your cloak on the road, wave that palm branch in the air, and say, Hallelujah, God's salvation has come for me. This week, um, after uh, last week's sermon, uh, we had the privilege of, of seeing uh, a young gal actually take a step and experience God's salvation, which is really beautiful. And for those of you who would not call yourself a Christian, the invitation to you today is come and join the family. Come and experience new life in God's kingdom. But church, for those of us who are Christians, I want to encourage you. The gospel still works. He's still saving people. He's still working through us to see his kingdom enacted, represented, and witnessed to in our community. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to take it for granted. Let's bring this good news to our friends. Let's invite people to Alpha. Let's bring people on next Sunday to Easter morning where people are a little bit more willing to come and participate in church. Let's share the hope that God has given us. Let's tell our story of when God came and set you free. Amen? Will you stand with me? And let's, grab, let's come forward and we'll grab the elements for communion and then we'll take them together in just a moment.
this week is Holy Week, um, which is the week leading up to Easter. And it is a week that is packed with so much symbolism and celebration. For Christians, we start it with Palm Sunday, and then we have Good Friday. We have, well, sorry, we have uh, Maundy Thursday, which is uh, the night before Jesus was betrayed. Then we have Good Friday, the day that Jesus died on the cross. We have Holy Saturday, which is a time of quiet reflection between the, the, the cross and the resurrection. And then we finish it with Easter, with Resurrection Sunday. But there's another holiday uh, that God's people, that Jesus would have celebrated during that time, and it's the festival of Passover that we talked about. And Passover is the story of God saving his people out from their slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 6, we read this promise from God. He says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will set you free from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, and I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And in the Passover supper, there are four cups. You drink four glasses of wine. It's a fun holiday. (laughs) And each of those cups reflects uh, each of these. When he gave us communion, he was celebrating the Passover. And so when he said, take and eat this, this bread, this is my body, which is broken for you, he was holding up a piece of matzah, a piece of matzah that is unleavened bread. It represents the fact that he, was, he lived a sinless life and that there was no defilement mixed with him. And the matzah is, is uh, striped and it is pierced, just as Jesus was. And he said, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Meaning I'm about to lay down my mortal flesh for the sins of the world. Friends, let's receive the bread. And then we read that a little while later after supper, he took the cup, saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And what we know is that the four cups of Passover are four promises. I will bring you out. I will set you free. I will redeem you. And I will take you for myself. It's really helpful for us to use maybe a word picture like addiction, where where this is, this is how God takes us out of our bondage. He, he says to like an addict, he says, the first one, I will bring you out. I will take you out of the circumstances, out of the drug den, out of the place that you find yourself where you just cannot escape. And then he says, I will set you free, meaning I will cleanse you of all of the, all, all of the cravings and the desires and everything that is drawing you back into that place of slavery. And then he says, I will redeem you meaning I'm going to wash away all of the effects of your addiction, all of the broken relationships, all of the squandered money, all of the pain, all of the broken trust. I'm going to wash all of it clean. And then he says, I will take you. I will give you a whole new identity. I'm going, the, the word here is literally, I will marry you and I will give you my own name. 
And so what we read is that Jesus took the cup after supper, which would have been the third cup. I will redeem you. And in this cup that we celebrate as communion, he is saying to each one of us, I am washing you totally clean. And that the identity and the memories of your past, all of the effects of your sin are being satisfied in my shed blood. Friends, let's drink. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this amazing morning where we can celebrate that as far as the east is from the west, that is how far you remove our transgressions from us. That when we come to you ashamed and afraid, saying, but what about this? But what about that thing that I did? But I can never forgive myself that you look at us with a puzzled look on your face and say, I don't remember. It's satisfied. It's finished. It's done away with. In Christ, you are a new creation. Lord, I pray for my friends across the room right now, and I ask, God, that you would, that your voice would thunder in our souls. It is finished. Your sin has no power over you anymore. You are new, and that we would not take it for granted another day, Lord, but that we would experience again the joy of our salvation. I pray for my friends here who have yet to, to take a step towards you or maybe who have drifted really far away from you and, and just know that it's time to come home. And I ask, Lord, that you would be the one who draws, Lord. We, 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 there's no, we do not do any kind of weird manipulative tactics or anything. We just want to extend the invitation. Come and receive today freedom from your bondage and salvation for your soul. He is welcoming you with open arms.